You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Uh, you know, Rebecca did a much better job with that than what I would have, because I have a flair for the dramatic. And if I had started this scripture reading uh, in, in chapter 4, verse 4, and just read it how I read it, it would sound more like, you adulterous people. I can just imagine someone waking up this morning and saying, you know, I really need an encouraging word. I need to hear something that just kind of lifts me up, lifts my spirits. I think I'll make my way to church this morning. You might be a little shocked at what you heard in the first couple words of our scripture reading this morning. And we don't want to be one of those churches that just skips over the tough passages. But friends, this isn't even a tough passage. This is a beautiful passage. When you understand what the writer is trying to say by calling us out, by confronting our adultery as the people of God, you can understand the divine nature of his love and his pursuit for us, which is just really beautiful. God has a word for us today, church. It's this. The only thing keeping you from a close, intimate relationship with God is you. The only thing keeping you from a close, intimate relationship, relationship with God is you. We oftentimes think that we can just live this Christian life passively and that nearness with God is guaranteed. But friends, nearness with God is not always an inevitability for us as believers. But it's something that we must pursue. And church family, the only thing preventing you from nearness with God today is yourself, according to God's word for us here. Sometimes we feel like God is a million miles away. But James teaches us that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Isn't that an amazing reality, church? That if we draw near to him, if we intentionally seek his face, that he will shine his face upon us. Isn't that good? Douglas Moo, a, a Bible scholar, he says this about this little passage that starts with you adulterous people. He says this, that it's here that we find the heart of the letter of James. Here is the heart of the letter of James. This is what he wants us to most understand. And he's continuing this theme that he's been doing since the very first week. And if you remember the very first week that we started studying James, he introduced us to a new word, a word that probably he coined. And that word was dipsychos. And if you remember what that means is that it's translated oftentimes as double-minded. But a good way that you might be able to think about that is two-souled, double-souled. Someone who has two souls that live within them is a double-souled, a dipsychos type of person. And what he's telling us is that all of us have the two souls that live within us. We have the old man 
who does what the things that the world loves, and we have the new man that does the things that Christ loves. And those two people are at war within us oftentimes. It's like we have multiple personality disorder or the more uh, modern descriptor of uh, dissociative identity disorder going on within us. Do you feel this, church, that sometimes you are that person that you want to be and you do the things you want to do, but oftentimes you do not do the one things you want to do and you often do the things you don't want to do? We live this double-souled life. And he uses that word again here. James is the first person in recorded history to use this word, so we think that he made it up himself. He uses it again in this passage, but he actually changes illustrations for the majority of this passage. Instead of talking about being double-souled, James talks about being adulterous. Being adulterers. Adulterers. Now, the use of this word is a little shocking uh, because I think that it's hard for us to understand it exactly on first reading. When you read that word adulterer, what you might assume James is confronting us about is saying, hey, church, you're full of people that are sleeping around. Repent. But actually, when you look at this text, what he, the, the word that he's used over and over again throughout this whole uh, this whole letter has been brothers. He's been saying brothers over and over again, which is normal. You would expect that because in ancient literature, that's how you would ad- address a, a mixed company. He w- you would just say brothers. You would not necessarily say brothers and sisters. You would just say brothers, and everybody assumes and understands that you're regarding the sisters in the room as well. But here, when he gets to this section, and he says, you adulterous people, he, he doesn't use the masculine form of adulterer, Much like Spanish and other languages, all the adjectives have their own gender to them. He uses the feminine form of the word adulterer. And so what he's actually saying is, you adulterous people, but it's not just you adulterous people, it's you adulterous wives, essentially is what he's saying. Now, is he only confronting the women in the room who happen to be sleeping around? No. He's picking up on this theme that's been going on throughout all of Scripture, where the church is called the Bride of Christ. This is most poignantly exemplified in Ephesians chapter 5. We just went through the book of Ephesians, and we get to this part where it says the church is the Bride of Christ. But then it's also demonstrated throughout all the prophets, where the prophets constantly are confronting the church, saying, hey, or confronting the people of God, saying, hey, you're being an adulterous bride right now. If you look at the prophets, you can see this in Isaiah chapter 54, it says this, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Jeremiah 3 picks up on this same. He says this, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. But I think that this illustration is most powerfully used in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Hosea is a minor prophet in the Old Testament. If you haven't read it, uh, I'm not surprised. It's one of those that many people skip over. But with the minor prophet of Hosea, what actually happens is kind of astounding. Hosea is a prophet, and sometimes God calls prophets to do kind of crazy visual illustrations. There's one prophet who goes and plays in the mud and and, uh, shows uh, the, the people, the invaders attacking Israel by kind of playing in the mud in front of everybody. He does these crazy visual 
uh, illustrations for the people. And actually with Hosea, it's kind of the craziest one because what God actually asked Hosea to do to demonstrate this reality of God's people being adulterers is he tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute, a woman named Gomer. And he said, your love for Gomer will be like my love for the church, my love for the people of God, for the Israelites. And so Hosea is pursuing this woman who is not faithful to him to demonstrate how the people of God are not faithful to God himself. And that we often chase after other gods, false gods. We are adulterous people. We're like the prostitute in the Hosea story. We constantly seek out false gods instead of the one true God that can bring us eternal joy and satisfaction. A few years ago, many years ago now, I was in a community group and I had this friend in our group who, um, really nice guy, really normal guy, very successful guy, he was good at his job, uh, good looking guy, had a young wife, they were newly married. One day, it was several weeks into the group, but we were going around sharing our stories and when we got to his story, you, you ever meet one of those people where you hear their story and then you're like, whoa, that was way different than what I was expecting. Well, that was how this guy was. He started sharing his story, and he started talking about his dad. His dad was, this part wasn't shocking, but it gets shocking in just a moment. His dad was a successful businessman, uh, good-looking guy, as, as was obvious, because uh, our friend was a good-looking guy. And uh, his dad was very successful, very well-respected, had a family that was um, kind of the storybook family, the American dream, what you would, what you would uh, seek after. But then his dad had a secret, and it's that he had an entirely different family. And our friend was the child of his second family. And so instead of growing up in that normal functioning nuclear family, this man, out of his selfishness, lived a split and divided life where he made everyone think that he had everything put together in his normal life, but then every once in a while he would show up unannounced for just a few days at a time to visit his other family because he couldn't have enough. He had this continual lust for more. Friends, I cannot imagine the psychological and emotional strain that that would put all of his children under, that you have a secret family on the side. And what James is saying today, church, is we are that dad. That we look like we have our act together, we show up, we do the right things, we go to church, maybe we give money, maybe we serve, we do all the right things, but we've got a secret side life going on where we're pursuing false gods, where we're pursuing things that are far from God. And James is calling us back to the wonderful Savior who loves us, who pursues us who forgives us. So when he says, you adulterous people, this is what he's talking about. He's saying, church, you have a secret lover on the side. That secret lover, it could be a literal secret lover, or it could be any other sort of friendship with the world. And that's what he goes into next. He continues. He says, James says, verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know 
that friendship, now friendship in this sense, he's not talking about just a platonic friend, okay? This is a little bit more than just friend. That friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This makes sense to us. How many marriages have you seen wrecked by unfaithfulness? It takes an especially, an especially an incredibly forgiving spouse to forgive and an incredibly repentant uh, uh, perpetrator to forgive someone who's committed adultery. Friendship with the world is enmity to God. If my, not, I'm not going to use my personal illustration, but if a spouse commits adultery with another spouse, or if a spouse commits adultery outside of that relationship, those two spouses are at enmity. They're not friends. They're, they're upset with one another. It's going to take some serious reconciliation if they're to work that out. And that's what he says friendship with the world is like. Now, we talked about this last week, but what is friendship with the world? The essence of friendship with the world is not just doing the wrong things, but it's wanting the right things too much. That's the essence of sin. It's not just doing the wrong things, doing the wrong things on the list of the bad things, but it's wanting good things, but making them ultimate things. And so the heart of friendship with the world is selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. Is pursuing things that are not God with too much ferocity. What anything that is a substitute for God and that you give more love to than God can become your friend in the world. To be a friend with the world is to find your meaning and purpose in something other than God. That can be your career or your finances or your appearance or a romantic relationship, or their lack of. It could be any of these sorts of things. Church, what are the things that you worry about? What are the things that fill your mind? What are the things that you define yourself by? What are the things that you feel like if you could not have that thing, it'd leave you a wreck? What are the things that you depend upon to give you satisfaction and joy? If you chase those lines long enough, you'll find your friendship with the world. C.S. Lewis gives a a very vivid description of friendship with the world in his book, The Great Divorce. Now, The Great Divorce is a fantastic book. I love everything C.S. Lewis wrote. The Great Divorce is also like one of his most confusing books. Uh, So I'm not going to stand up here and try to describe the plot to The Great Divorce. But the essence of it is basically a choice between heaven and hell. It's basically a choice between a heaven and a hell. And he tells the story of a man who's choosing between heaven and hell, but he, he currently hasn't chosen heaven. And he has a, a lizard on his shoulder. And an angel comes to talk to him and says, I can take care of that lizard. Now, the lizard is this evil, whispering wizard of, uh, wizard, lizard of lust. So the lizard represents the man's lust. And the angel says, I can take care of that lizard for you. And the man starts screaming. And he says, get back. You are burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you killed the lizard. Oh, I, 
I know, you think I'm a coward, but it, it isn't that. It really isn't. You see, he had become such a friend with this lizard of lust that he could not imagine killing the lizard without killing himself. Oftentimes, the things that we're friends with in the world become the things that define us. Eventually, the man allows the angel to kill the lust lizard, and the lizard is flung down onto the ground. And this is the beautiful part, because after the lizard dies on the ground, the man mourns it. They both are resurrected, and the lizard becomes the stallion, and the man is uh, placed on top of the stallion, and they ride off into heaven. You see, God not only took the thing that he loved, he had to give it up, but he gave him so much more in return. And that is what the scriptures tell us, that we're adulterous people, but we're like the children, another C.S. Lewis illustration, we're like the children making mud pies when there's a, a, a vacation in, in the, at sea available to us. God is calling you, church, this morning to let go of your friendship with the world. I know it's going to be really hard. I know it's going to be really hard. There's things that are ingrained in us that we've been doing for years and years that is just killing us. Friendship with the world feels good, but friendship with God is better, church. And the only thing keeping you from a close, intimate relationship with God is you. Even while we were being a friend to the world, God was yearning for us. Verse 5 of chapter 4, this is what James says. He says, or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? God wants us to come home. He's not sitting back with his arms crossed thinking, you got to prove it to me. You gotta show me you really want it. You gotta, you gotta do this by yourself. No, he's calling you home, and as you come home, he helps you. God's done his part. He's paid for our sins. Romans 5, verse 10 says, For if while we were we were his enemies, while we were friends of the world, pursuing other less satisfying lovers to our soul, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Friends, God may feel distant to you this morning, but he is longing, yearning, to draw you in near and close. Many of us live in this quiet resignation. That fellowship with God, that nearness with God is this um, fleeting thing that we really cannot count on in life. That nearness with God is not something for us. And if it is, it's just a, a very rare occurrence that we should experience. We've come to realize that, we've come to, to feel and to, to think that real change isn't possible because God feels so distant. And so we just resolve to live in our own sin and just say, that's the way it is. But friends, James gives us so much more hope than that. Our inappropriate relationship with the world can be broken. There is hope. You don't have to live in that quiet resignation that God will just remain distant. But the nearness of God can be close. Verse 7. This is what James says. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now this passage is talking about the devil. And a lot of times when we think about the devil in the church, uh, sometimes you might think, well, that's ridiculous. Uh, I don't believe in the devil. If you're, if you're not from within the church, that might be your, your first thought. Um, which I would say your, uh, your doubt in him is probably something that he is thankful for because he can accomplish a lot with people that don't believe in him. But for those of us who believe in the devil, we think of him as this big, scary guy. He's way stronger than us. He's way more powerful than us. We're going to have to really get up our strength to fight him back. We think of the devil as someone that we have to fight nail and tooth, who's coming at us with tanks and assault weapons, and only the highly trained and ready can defeat him. But I want you to look at this passage. Because at this passage, what I want you to see is that the devil is an absolute wimp. He's like the bully that you just like, you just touch him once and he runs away. It doesn't say, church, fight back against the devil. Fight him with all that is in you. It just says, resist him. And then what does it say? Does it say, resist him and he'll give up? No. It says, resist him and he will flee. He'll run away. He's an absolute wimp. The devil's got nothing. You've got God on your side. The devil's got nothing on you. When you feel his temptation, all you have to do is resist him. Resist, church. I know that the temptation feels strong, that it feels hard. Resist him, and he will not just stop it. He will run away from you. You have the strength of God living within you. That is what this passage is saying. God is on your side and Satan doesn't stand a chance. He's a wimp. Our inappropriate relationship with the world can be broken, church. God is ready. Resist the evil one. Verse 8, and this is powerful. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When you finally decide to go back to God, how is God receiving you? Is he saying, what does this loser want? What is this? I've had so much forgiveness for you. You've come to me 12 times saying you're ready to come back. And you just keep going back to the world. Does God look at us like people that he's ready to give up on? No. That's not his posture at all. We come to him broken, adulterous people over and over again. And how does he receive us? With open arms, like the, like the, the father and the son and the prodigal, the parable of the uh, prodigal son. He receives us back with a warm welcome. When you look at this passage, what you see is that first part, draw near to God. This is a command. So this first part is not automatic. It's possible for you as a Christian to live in a settled distance from God. Pastor T.J. Timms talks about this, and he says, I wouldn't recommend it, but it is possible for you to just decide that I'm okay living in this settled distance from God. But why would you do that when there's overwhelming joy of being in your Father's arms that's available? 
Nearness to God is not an inevitable reality for the believer. But every single one of us in here, church, every single one of us has the capability of drawing near to God right now. Satan wants to tell you that no, it's not possible. Resist him. You have the capability to draw near to God here today, even if you're sweating a little bit. If you're not 100% comfortable, you have the ability to draw near to God here today. Look at how people sought Jesus in the New Testament. They would go running after him. People would walk for days to hear his teaching. Are you not willing to do that? To draw near to him, to run after him. Look at the paraplegic man. This man, he can't walk. He can't even walk with his arms. He can't use a wheelchair. But he says, friends, will you help me? Take me to Jesus. And when there's too many people near to Jesus, he says, get me on that roof, cut a hole through the roof, and lower me down. I need to be near to Jesus. Are you willing to seek him like that? Look at the, the parable of the widow who just continues to plead her case, continues to seek after the judge for the right decision. Look at Zacchaeus, the wee little man that he was. We've got a KSA this week. It wasn't good enough for him to just be near. He's got to see Jesus. He climbs a tree so he can see him. Friends, Jesus is nearer to you than what you recognize. Will you just draw near to him? Will you seek him? We have this idea that feeling near to God should just feel automatic. It should just be something that happens, that, that, that happens to us. Too many of us float along in our Christian lives hoping for the best. We just float along expecting God to boop, appear. Draw near to him, Christian, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Persist in prayer. Keep on praying. Keep on seeking him and you'll find him. Do it now. Don't just write this down and say, I really need to be reading my Bible. No, you're here with the people of God. This is the safest place to draw near to him. Draw near to the Lord. Friends, God's side of the equation is not contingent upon anything. It's not conditional. Our side is conditional. Our side says you should draw near to God. You could draw near to God. The other side is when you do, he will draw near to you. Unconditional. He will draw near to you. It's guaranteed. And it's guaranteed because Jesus laid down his life for us so that we might draw near to God. Don't try to go by yourself. If you draw near to God and God says, say, say the hypothetical does happen where you draw near to God, you draw near to the divine, and he says, what are you doing here? What type of loser are you? Why would I want to be near you? How would you respond? You'd respond with a simple, well, yeah, but I'm with Jesus. <laughs> bring it in, you know, bring it in. Because when you're with Jesus, his righteousness covers you completely. 
It's not because of your outstanding behavior that he draws near, but it's because he loves you like he loves Christ. James ends this passage with some simple steps on how to do it. And again, he, he has a flair for the dramatic, so it's a little dramatic. Here's what he says, verse, second half of verse 8. At first he has this beautiful, this beautiful saying where he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then without even a different verse, the next, the next part of that verse says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. I get to point my finger again. Uh, this is, he, he's doing this again. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's that word. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, if you, there's a reason why we read the scripture in context. Because if you take that verse out of context, it's going to look like it's opposed to many other verses in the scripture. There's a, a passage in Philippians that says, rejoice always in the Lord. And so then you read this one, it says, let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. And it feels like it is uh, against what Paul is saying in Philippians, but it's not. What James is trying to say is if you are functioning as an adulterous person, that you need to stop celebrating your relationship with the world, your friendship with the world, and you have to let go of your sins. You have to give up that friendship with God. You have to let the lizard be killed. He's basically saying, hey, church, those sins aren't going to confess themselves. You need to take it seriously. As we draw near to God this morning, let's mourn our former way of life. Say, that person is dead. I don't want to be with that person anymore. Let's give it all to God. Are you willing to kill your romance with this world? Some of you know that the world is killing you, but you're not willing to do anything because it's, it's, it's a friend with benefits. You know that the world is killing you. You're filling yourself up on alcohol. You're smoking weed at night so that you can numb the pain of the realities and the cruelties of this life. You're avoiding God. You're addicted. You're addicted to porn. You're addicted to something else. Friends, the word says that God is not holding out on you. That God is not holding out on you. That he can be found if you seek after him. Let's say, as we, as we close up here, let's say that you're car shopping. You don't have much money. You're car shopping in Somerville, and you find this car, used car, you find it on Craigslist, and you go check out the car, and you pop the trunk, and inside the trunk are... It, it are the, just a, an assortment of diamonds. I mean, just like the most exquisite collection of diamonds that you have ever seen. And let's say your conscience is free of like ripping this guy off uh, from taking his car. And let's say these, con these diamonds were ethically sourced and that they're real and all that sort of thing. Well, what do you do? The car is worth more than money than you have in the bank. But these diamonds are worth more money than you could ever imagine. You have to go sell everything you own. You go home, you sell your old MP3 player, you sell your, your, your iPad, you sell your computer, you sell half your wardrobe. All you come back with are the, <laughs> you, you've sold it all, you've hit up the Facebook marketplace. All you come back with are the clothes that are on you and a briefcase full of like $20 bills because that's all you could get for all your stuff and you buy the car. 
That's what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. That when you find it, you have to be willing to give up everything. But when you do, you drive away with riches beyond your most imaginable uh, dreams. That is the kingdom of God. God is waiting with the riches, but it's going to cost you everything. Life with God is unimaginably satisfying and joyful. Unimaginably. But it's going to mean that you give up on your current life in order to get it. And that is the message of Christianity. That's it. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. If you want to understand it, that's it. That's what, the, that's what Christianity is all about. Each week, God actually gives us an opportunity to draw near to him. If you have someone that you're trying to build a relationship with, them, with what is, what's a better way to build a relationship with someone than to go out to eat, to share a meal together? That's, there's a reason why most dates involve a meal. And each week we have an invitation to draw near to God through a meal. Communion is an invitation to draw near to God. Church, this morning, don't let this, pa- this opportunity pass you by. What's keeping you from God? Communion is an opportunity to evaluate yourself and to give those things up as you come and say, I want relationship with you more than anything. It's a time for you to dump your worldly lovers and to pursue after the one who loves you more than what they ever could. God, as we come to the table that you've prepared, we know you're sitting at it. We know that this bread represents your body broken for us and your blood shed for us. And through Christ, we get true relationship with you. I pray that as we receive this meal, that you'll draw near to us, that you'll transform our hearts and help us to love you above all other things. God, I pray that this church will be full of people resisting the evil one, of sending their former lovers to the curb and pursuing you in that messy resilience that it takes. God, I pray that we might draw near to you, that we might see the loveliness that is in you, that we might understand the power of what the resurrected life with you is like. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.